I want to look at this man, John the Baptist, and kind of look at some of this prophetic unction that was on this man's life, what we can learn from this. Luke chapter 7. Uh, I want to remind everybody on Tuesday nights, we've been delving into the gifts of the Spirit. And if you've ever had any questions on things related to discerning of spirits, things related to prophecy and tongues, we'll be moving into all of that come Tuesday night, and we'll get into it with great detail. You'll know exactly what the Bible teaches. It's much more important to know what the early church taught about it than what modern churches teach about it in their doctrinal statements, but to know what the scriptures say. Luke chapter 7, verse 24. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Reed shaken with the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled live delicately or in king's courts. But what went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now this chapter has Jesus doing some remarkable things in the preceding verses and the stories have made their way back to John, who has sent his messengers to Jesus and Jesus has told them to inform John of all the supernatural things that I'm doing. And then, of course, you can see in verse 23, he says, blessed is the one that's not offended in me. Somewhere along this time, Jesus felt the need to give a good report or to eulogize John the Baptist. And then he starts dealing with these questions. He said, what kind of a man were you looking for when you went out there and heard about him preaching by the River Jordan? He said, were you looking for a reed? Now, of course, out here along the riverbanks, we have a lot of volunteer growth. So you have a lot of vegetation that comes up along the River Jordan. You have these plants that are called reeds They shoot straight up in the air. Very thin, slender and feeble. A slight breeze coming by can take one of those reeds and just blow it. And Jesus is saying regarding this man, John, that he was not a weak, vacillating man. You went out into the wilderness to hear him. You heard a man that was different. This was a man that dressed in camel's hair. This was a man that spent his time in hiding until his time of revelation. And then in verse 25, he asked the question again about the, the way people dressed. Did you look for somebody that you would ordinarily see in a palace? John wasn't gorgeously apparelled. He wasn't in silks and other kinds of beautiful cloths that monarchs and the servants of monarchs would have worn, those kind of people belong in a king's court. That's what Jesus said. So you can see the mentality. The, the idea is that those who dressed so well in ancient times that they never got their hands dirty 
or soft. That individuals who lived their lives working for the king and lived in delicacy were weak. But that's not how John the Baptist was. The scripture here says in verse 26, you went out to see a prophet. But he was much more than that. Now, what is a prophet? If we consider the Old Testament text, then naturally Abraham is spoken of as a prophet. But let's think of Moses. Moses was a man that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. He did it with mighty signs and wonders. Let's not forget Samuel was a prophet. He declared the word of the Lord. Let's not forget people like uh, like Isaiah who preached to people that didn't want to hear what he had to say. Ezekiel had visions of people that were going to be dispersed and scattered. Let's not forget somebody like Elijah. Here's a man that when he stood in the face of Ahab, he told him it's not going to rain. They knew what a prophet was. A prophet was someone who didn't compromise. He was someone who spoke without fear of a person's political status, economic status, was not intimidated by a person's place in society. Here's what God said. That's a prophet. And the scripture here says John the Baptist was much more than that. And Jesus even took a verse out of Malachi to explain the ministry of John the Baptist, that he was a messenger. He was to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist. A messenger is someone that has a message. You think of the the courier today, the mailman. The, the, the woman or, or gentleman who carries all of the mail back and forth. It does not matter what the weather is, folks. That mailman has to carry those letters. I don't care if it's 32 inches of snow out there and it's 12 below zero and ice everywhere. They may be delivering mail at 11 o'clock at night, but they have to deliver that mail regardless of what is taking place The messenger in ancient times was someone whose role was that of a courier. He carried messages from the king and important people, from noble persons to other villages and towns. And he was not allowed to permit anybody to stop him from accomplishing his task. So what is a prophet? He's a messenger to tell what God has told him to say and not to allow anybody to hinder him from saying it and not to become distracted by what's taking place around. People are easily distracted today. You remember there was that prophet in the Old Testament, the Lord told him to go deliver the word of the Lord, said don't stop and talk to anybody. He went, delivered the word, he's coming back. There's another old man heard that that prophet had come along. He said, look, I'm a prophet just like you and God told me to tell you, you can come to my house and have a meal. But God hadn't told him anything. And that prophet went to that man's house and sat there and ate that meal. And the man that lied to get him in the house then spoke the truth to him and said, because you didn't honor the word of the Lord and you stopped and had a meal here. The judgment of God is on you. When he left that man's house, he died. What's the role of a prophet? To declare the word of the Lord and not be distracted by what anybody says, because ultimately God is going to ensure that his message goes forth. So John the Baptist was a messenger. But he's to prepare the way of the Lord. 
He prepared the way for the coming of Christ the first time. This was the introduction of the messianic era. Here comes the Lord to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He prepared the way. In ancient Rome, if the king wanted to travel to a certain place, he had men that would get out there days, weeks, months before and start preparing a road for him to go through a valley, for him to come around a mountain or a hillside, preparing the way. And that prophet has to walk into territories sometime and has to speak the word of the Lord and do it in such a way that he's like a man with an axe that's clearing a path for other people to come through. Like somebody with a machete marching through the forest, trying to clear the foliage so that people can blaze a trail. This is what John the Baptist's ministry was. This is what Jesus said he was doing before he came. And I'm telling you now, the same Christ that came the first time is coming again. And the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to function in this earth now with a prophetic unction. To declare the mind of God, to speak the voice as the voice of God, to declare the words of God to people that may not necessarily want to hear it. The church is supposed to be a place with a message, a message. You do realize that we're supposed to be the voice of God and not the echo of the world. Many people are an echo. Whatever they hear somebody else saying, whatever they hear the world saying, they just repeat in the church what is going around in the culture. But a true man or woman of God has spent time in the presence of God. Huldah was a prophetess. Anna was a prophetess. Miriam was a prophetess. Deborah were prophetesses. All of them in the presence of God, seeking God's mind so that they could deliver it to the people. Preparing the way of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means that we are part of him, part of the body. If anybody wants to get to the king, they've got to come through Christ. If the prophet is going to prepare the way of the Lord, he's not preparing a natural pathway. He's preparing us. God is working to prepare us so that he can manifest himself also through us. I know he's coming again, but he wants to come tonight through us and reach people and touch people. He has to prepare the way, the the voice, the message. So the scripture is clear. Jesus said, I'm saying to you, there's nobody born amongst women that isn't greater than him. But this man was unique. The least in the kingdom of God was better than him. No other prophet was as exceptional. What was it about this man that made him unique? You can look in Luke chapter 1, and you can see in verse 5 that he had a mom and dad that were of the lineage of Aaron. And you can see in verse number 6 that they both were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. We oftentimes, when describing the law, we say things like this, nobody could keep the law, nobody ever kept the law. That it was impossible and Jesus came to fulfill the law. But let's not forget that one time even Paul said that touching the law, he was blameless. And now you have two more people right here where Luke writes and says, Concerning the law of God, they were blameless, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. How many parents can have that testimony? They had it. 
What was it about John the Baptist's life that made him exceptional? He came from exceptional parents. How many of us can say our parents were perfect when it came to the things of God? Not too many of us. Not too many of us. And when we look at our lives today, most of us in here right now, probably all of us in here right now, would probably say touching the law in the Old Testament and the things related to the grace of God, we're not blameless, but blameworthy. This man had a mom and a dad that were holy and righteous before God. They were as holy and righteous as Job was. But you can see from verse 7, even though they were walking with God in faith, they didn't have a child. Wanted a child. Prayed for a child. Prayed for decades for a child. And the scripture says Elizabeth was unable, but now they're older in years, well stricken, I'm assuming that's upwards of 70, 80 years serving God faithfully. No baby. The Bible says that this man, Zechariah, had been praying, and we know that from verse 13 when the angel tells him, your prayer is heard. Now I wonder sometimes when I look at this, Why didn't they backslide and turn from God? I've met a whole lot of people that have prayed, didn't get their prayers answered and walked away from God and said things like this. I prayed one time. God didn't answer my prayer when my mom died. I don't want to have nothing to do with church. There are a lot of people in the world like that. But as you can see with Zachariah and Elizabeth, despite the fact that they still did not have a child, they continued to fall in love with God. And with every day that passed, their love for the king grew greater and greater. And Zechariah still came and fulfilled his duties as a priest happily. Not in an angry fashion, not in a bitter way. I've met a whole lot of people that if you ask them to do this or the Lord commands them to do that, they have bitterness in their hearts because they have to do something for God. Not Zechariah. Zachariah was praying, Lord, touch my wife, help me to have a child. I'm going to the temple to labor for you. I wonder how many baby dedications they were a part of. I wonder how many times they held babies in their arms that belonged to other people, but they continued to love God. So one day while Zechariah was in the temple, the scripture says the angel of the Lord appeared in verse 13 and said to him, Zechariah, your prayer is heard. Your wife is going to bear you a son. So that is to say that your prayer is going to be answered. Old man, old woman. You mean to tell me God answers prayers for the elderly? Surely you can't believe God answers prayer. I thought once you got over 60, God stopped answering prayer. But you can see here that that God is still answering prayer. And I think some of you in here could testify that you probably needed more prayers, prayers answered after 60 than you probably did before. But look at how good God is. Here is a couple going on with God of the lineage of Aaron. And suddenly this shiny, glowing being is in front of Zechariah. And the words are too big for him to even believe. You mean to tell me I'm going to be a daddy in old age? Then the angel continues and gives him a prophecy. You will call his name John because you're bearing a son. Gives the gender. 
And he says, you'll have joy and gladness and many shall rejoice at his birth. You better believe they were excited when he was born. And you know everybody in the villages were excited because they finally had that baby. Wow. And the angel continues in verse 15. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. He was exceptional because nobody else in the Bible was ever filled with the Holy Ghost from their womb. Even Jesus, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, later was baptized with the Holy Ghost at the age of 30. John the Baptist comes into the world full of the Holy Ghost. And the Bible even tells us that his mother Elizabeth was then filled with the Holy Spirit with him in the womb. And his daddy Zachariah later was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. Zachariah had to go nine months without even being able to speak because he didn't believe the angel's words. But when the boy was born and they asked what's going to be his name, they tried to give him a Hebrew name. Another kind of name. He said, oh, no, 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 no name from our family. It's going to be John. They said, there's nobody in the family named John. And sometimes God breaks us out of the tradition, you see. Just because everybody else in the family has done it, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go down the same path. Yeah. You can give a child a good holy name like John, see? That's what he's saying. Well, this man, John the Baptist, when he was born, then we learn that he was special in the eyes of God. Think of that, folks. His mom and dad were holy and walked before God. Don't you think they put that in him? Don't you think they taught him to love God? Now, understandably, There have been millions of parents in the body of Christ that have lived the life of God according to the light that they possessed and did everything they could to pass that on to their kids, only to watch those kids grow up and go in a different direction. But I want you to understand that you cannot force anybody to do anything, but it is still your responsibility to live before God and live for God. John the Baptist watched his dad go up there to that temple over and over again, watched his mama praying those prayers. And that very thing was yet inside of him. And somewhere along the line, mom and dad died. I don't know when they could have lived to be 180. I don't know. Nothing else is said about them in here. But I do know this. It says that John was in the deserts till the day of his revelation to Israel. In the deserts, spending time with God. Why was John the Baptist exceptional? Because he had a dad that was a priest and he was destined to be a priest, but John broke out of the mold. And as a prophet of God, said, I'm not going to spend my life up there in that temple. I'm going out here in the wilderness and I'm going to do what God predicted I should do. 
And out there in that wilderness with nothing but locusts and some honey and dressed in camel hair and looking as exotic and as odd as any man could possibly look. When it was time for him to reveal himself and the Lord said, I want you to now go and preach. He stepped out of the desert into the Jerusalem, Judea area. And when they looked at him, they said, this man must be crazy. Look at him. Everything about him is different. He doesn't act like us. He doesn't talk like us. But he wasn't supposed to. He was a prophet of God. This man had been in the presence of God. And he comes out. And in Luke chapter 3, the scripture said in verse 3, he's preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's a unique message. Because you're telling people to turn their life around. I have found as a minister, if you want to offend someone, tell them to repent of their sins because you are saying to them that they are sinners and that their life is going in the wrong direction. And to repent is to turn your mind and your heart. You turn your mind and your heart, you turn your behavior. Once you curb your behavior, then you can live for God. And God, the Holy Ghost, brings conviction wherever the word is proclaimed and wherever there's power to convict, there's power to repent. Where there's power to repent, there's power to believe. Where there's power to believe, there's the power of a regenerated life. So here's John the Baptist preaching repentance. And as the Bible tells us, they were coming from everywhere, folks. They come from everywhere to see this man, to hear this man. And John was a person preaching Christ. In the sense that later when cousin shows up, he said, behold, the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. This man had a preparatory ministry for the messianic era that was on this earth at that time. Listen in verse four of Luke three. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, not the voice of two people, not the voice of three people. What is it that made John the Baptist unique? He was just one person with this message. Nobody else. No one else proclaimed it. No one else that we know of was seeing the results that he had. Look at how he says in verse five, it's quoting scripture. Isaiah again, it says this man Says because of him, every valley will be filled. Mountains and hills will be brought low. Verse six, all the flesh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And in verse seven, he said to the multitudes that came forth to be baptized, old generation of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Here is that prophetic unction again. Direct in your face, declaring the word of the Lord, even to people of power like the Pharisees. John the Baptist wasn't intimidated. Here is what God says in verse eight. Bring, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And don't talk about saying Abraham is our father because God can raise up children out of these rocks. That'll be better than you. Yeah. So then it's it's a message that's clear. And I, I think as a church body on planet Earth. That the church of God ought to be in a, a, a prophet in the earth, speaking forth God's word, preparing the way of the Lord. We, we should be like a river that carves out new channels through which the revelation of God can flow. 
Now, over west near Alma, there was a time about 120 years ago where the river flowed in a different direction. But because of an earthquake and tremors and all of that and a terrible flood that took place, that river changed courses. There's a brand new riverbed over there that's been there now for 60 or 70 years. And I'm telling you that when God is wanting to do something in the earth, he has that church rise up with a voice that hears from heaven and begins in unison to declare the mind of God. And he gives people ears to hear what he say. We know the king is coming. There's no doubt about that. But this generation presently that is so influenced by the world's system, the world, the flesh, and the devil, needs to hear a voice that tells them to repent and to turn, to turn towards God. And and, and that voice has to come from you. It's got to come from the church. Think about it. In in your lifetime, how how many bad teachings have you heard? How many bad sermons, how many heretical doctrines have you heard? But then at the same time, think of think of how many preachers you've seen that you thought, oh, my goodness, she's a bit eccentric. But yet coming out of her is a word from God that changes people or some evangelist that you thought, man, he's got some odd habits and mannerisms, but yet when he preaches the word of God, lives are changed, you see? And it's those kinds of people in this day and age that we need because we have to help prepare the way of the Lord and the way to do that is to hear what God is saying and to declare it. Repent. The kingdom of God is come. And then when you tell people to repent, we have to tell them you actually have to have a lifestyle that demonstrates you really have turned. If we're not going to change how we live, then there's no sense in calling it repentance. But when revival comes and the move of God appears, people will see it. Charles Finney was a really popular guy back in the 19th century. I don't go along with everything that, that he believed, but I can tell you one thing. This man had revival all across the northeast and many of these villages. He was originally a Presbyterian. They ran him out because he he pretty much preached the Holy Ghost too much and had too many people praying. Too many revivals were breaking out. So the whole Presbyterian church ran him out and he ended up starting Oberlin College just to have a place to train up his own ministers. But they say this man would walk down the streets in certain villages and people would fall out, begin to weep and cry because they were sinners. I don't know how many counties went dry under that man's preaching. I'm talking about everybody in the saloon got saved and everybody attending the saloons got saved. And when he would stand up to preach and ask people to come down to what they called in those times an anxious, an anxious bench and what later became a mourner's bench. People would come down there and sit and they were concerned about the status of their soul. And he would preach and they would shake and they would tremble and fall right out of the pew on the floor, crying out to God, have mercy on my soul, God. Yeah, he had revival in America, even if other people didn't like what he was doing. Well, you take Peter Cartwright. He was a great camp meeting preacher for the Methodist church. 
Peter Cartwright was one of those old country farm guys. I mean, he'd get up there, preach a revival, 15, 20 people get saved in the middle of the night. And then one of those guys come in and want to break up the meeting and, and, and come in with sticks and, and axe handles and want to fight. And then Peter Cartwright go outside the tent and brawl with him. And then finish brawling and come right back in and preach another revival message. And people come running to the altar and get saved. He was one of these guys that was not going to be pushed around by the culture. They'd come in cussing. They'd come in with beer bottles and throw them under, you know, under the tent or wherever he was preaching. And he didn't care. He was going to keep preaching no matter what. He just duck and dodge whatever they were throwing and kept preaching the gospel to thousands of people. Revival came. Think of those old preachers that came out here a hundred so years ago and didn't have any support, didn't have anything but God. That's it. Lived along the riverbanks, shot crows, ate them, squirrels, whatever else they could find just to try to build a church. And yet many communities locked them out because they weren't part of the main denominational church that was popular. But they prayed, they sought God, and they saw some people that genuinely were saved and converted. Folks, God would give revival to anybody that would preach repentance and tell people to change. And if people do it, God will do great things, you know. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. A, a, a lot of things we've read touches my heart. You know, I'm looking at this stuff and say, oh my goodness, Father, how did you do that, Lord? Do it again, oh God. We, we've only seen a glimpse, just a little bit of, of, of the power and the presence of God as I desire to see it. But all across South Central Nebraska, North, Northwest, North Central Kansas, we, we've seen some things. We've seen the move of God. We've seen people baptized with the Holy Ghost. We've had the testimonies of healing, boatloads of people giving their hearts to Jesus Christ. But we still yearn for more. We can never be satisfied. We want to see God do it and do it in a greater way. When Hastings had that prison up there, I'm telling you, we had one great revival up there. They had over 180 people in that prison back when I first came out here. And I, I don't know why the Lord put it on my heart to go up there and start preaching to some of those folks. In that prison, they had a few ministries and they weren't reaching a whole lot of people. But I went in, did my security background check, and they said, you can come up here on whatever day it was, Monday or Tuesday. But I came up there that night. They put me on the second floor, and I had a room that probably was no bigger than the kids' Sunday room. And, and that's where they wanted me to teach these prisoners. So I got up there, and then I, I, I went into that little room. They had a board. I put my name up there, and I'm writing a few little things for the Bible study. And I'm watching people walk past the door, and they look in, and then they turn around and go back the other direction. But nobody ever came in. But they came over that loudspeaker, and they said, uh, tonight we've got Bible study with Pastor Darrell at 7 o'clock. I heard them. They said it. It's 6.55. Nobody's coming in. Well, it's 7 o'clock. Nobody's in. I decided I'm not going to stay on the inside of this room. I stepped out into that hallway. I lifted up my voice and I said, if you folks are not going to come in here and listen to me in here, I'm stand out here in the hallway and preach to you. So one by one, they start trickling in there, had a number of them in there. 
ministered to them, taught the word, prayed for them. Some got saved. Within a few short months, I was in the basement now because I had 60 or 70 of them coming out, listening to me preach. Power of God was falling like rain in that place. I'm telling you, these people were crying out to God, giving their hearts to the Lord. Lives were being changed. Well, the, uh, the people who were working there were really happy when I came. Because whenever I showed up and had Bible study, people could go to lunch and everything else because there's hardly anything happening. Nobody was fighting and there were no problems or anything like that. But the Lord had opened a door. And I'll never forget one night we had all them folks there. I, I walked up to 12 people, laid hands on them. First seven people, I laid hands on them just like in Acts chapter 19. The power of God fell on them. They went to talking with other tongues and the other ones. God filled them with the Holy Spirit while laying in bed that night. Revival was on. Well, even one night it was so good the warden even came. He wanted to know what was going on there. So then they gave me the cafeteria. Because by now I've got 120, 130 of them coming out there. They'd finish up their evening meal. I'd get there in time for folks to be cleaning up, and then they're rushing to try to get back to Bible study. I would walk in without any board, without anything hardly to pass out, but maybe some tracks. Had a Bible in my hand, and I'd just stand up and start preaching to them the same way I'm preaching right now. God was moving. Conviction. Lives being touched. That place was filled with everything from folks who had stolen something and gotten caught. People that were rapists, murderers. I mean, everything you can think of was in that place. I would I would have to try to keep my bearing and my face the right way when they would tell me what they did, because some of it was so shocking. But they said to me, they said, Pastor, you come up here and you preach to us. But he said, you go home, you know, you make that drive back home and the folks up here don't like what you're preaching. And when you leave, they do some terrible things to us. They're beating on us. They're sexually assaulting us. That's what grown men are telling me. Folks in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Because when I walk into the prison... I could either go this way or this way, two different wings, and in different wings you had these different gangs and all of these cliques within each wing, and here I'm coming to preach to them. Well, every Sunday morning, before I ever went on KRVN, the big radio station, I used to be on the local station out of Hastings, right there on Highway 6, going out of the town towards the uh, east And I would drive up there early in the morning on Sunday and I would minister on radio live in the studio. And all them folks in the prison were listening to me. And then I'd turn around and drive all the way back just to teach the adult Sunday school there at Revival Tabernacle. But these folks said to me, they said, Pastor, these folks are harming us when you leave. I said, man, there's nothing I can do. Other than preach, because I can't move in here. You guys aren't going to be able to come home with me. But I, I felt so bad because of what they said was taking place at the end of these meetings. I came out there one evening and we had the cafeteria full of people. 
I got up to preach. They're sitting there. Folks are ready. And I mean, you just that just kind of like a holy buzz is in there as everybody's talking about the meeting and, and, and how much good time they've been having. And, and then I notice that in comes all these people and they come stand along the walls, along the back, and, and they kind of make a horseshoe. So I'm here. All the prisoners are here. And then these other prisoners come. And these were the ones in the gangs that were coming out that night to intimidate the meeting to try to keep me from preaching the gospel to these folks. So they got all their colors and all of that and they all these paraphernalia on their heads and everything. And they come out there and they're standing just like this up against the walls. Well, I always tell people, I don't know what notes I had for that night, but whatever notes I had, I tore them up because I decided that night I'm preaching on hell. And I did. I mean, I let it rip. I'm telling you, I had this thing vivid, vividly explained and described and I'm preaching. And the people that are out there, of course, they're scared because these are the ones been causing a ruckus when I when I left. And so the the people that sitting there, they weren't really like they would normally, you know, say amen and all that. They're just kind of looking at me. And every now and then somebody would kind of wink and then they kind of give me a thumbs up like that. But I'm preaching. I'm, I'm battling. I know this is a spiritual thing. And, and at the end, I said, I'm not going to be up here begging any of you to come to Christ. Without Christ, you're lost. You'll burn in hell for a long time. And then you end up in that lake of fire. You need Christ. The blood of Jesus can bring you out of your sins right now. I said, all heads bow, eyes closed. If you're here tonight, you want to become a Christian and surrender to the Lord. Stick your hand in the air right now. And I watched among all of them gang members, people standing up. They had their heads down and eyes closed and them hands start going up just like this. Just like this. I'm telling you, folks. In about a year or so, God changed the entire complexion of that prison. Just by preaching Christ. Yeah, just by preaching Christ. The revival was on because God was changing people one person at a time. And in those early years out here, when some of them would get out of jail, they'd just write me a little note just to thank me for coming up there to preach. And when they shut that prison down, it just about broke my heart. Closed it up. The buildings aren't even there anymore, my wife told me here the other day. But when I think about going and proclaiming Christ to them, I wonder how many of them might somewhere be pastoring or maybe parents right now, raising up godly children because somebody took some time to come up to that prison and tell them there is somebody that loves you and he's not giving up on you. Yeah. Folks, we can have a move of God. We've just got to be that voice that God wants us to be. And we cannot be intimidated by what's taking place in this world. We have to keep singling out Christ and pointing people to that Savior. Amen? Amen. No doubt about it, folks. Come on, let's stand on our feet. Let's just for a few moments lift our hands to God and just worship him. Almighty God, you are lovely. There's no one like you. 
Thank you for caring for us. Thank you, O God, for using each of us to be witnesses in these last days. We know that your son is soon to come. We want to be part of that end time plan, Lord, that's going to lead fathers back to their sons and daughters, back to their mothers. We want that John the Baptist anointing on this church and on the true body of Christ so that we can turn many people to the Lord. Oh God, we don't ask this because we want to boast in numbers. We don't ask this because we want to magnify our name. We ask this because we want to populate the kingdom of God and plunder hell, oh God. We want soul after soul to come into saving contact with the love of God. Oh Lord, we worship you and praise you. Use our people, God, to be witnesses. Use them to be lovers of God and lovers of Christ. And as you give us occasion, Lord, let us share the good news of Jesus with those that don't know you. Oh, God, we love you and praise you, God. What a Savior, what a Savior. Oh, God, there's no one like you. Thank you, God. Oh, God. Lay some soul on our heart, O oh God, that we might love that soul for you. And may we ever do our part to win that soul to you, God. Oh God, we love you. Jesus, you're beyond compare. And we just stand in your presence now, just thanking you. Because you're wonderful, God. Oh, God, what a Savior, what a Savior. Thank you, Father, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We honor you, Lord. We love you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. So good, so good. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. Let's sing that again. Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Oh, my. Folks, there's no better time to be alive than right now. Yes. Amen, amen, amen. The king is coming soon. I believe it. I believe that. 
These may not be the last days, but I do know that these are our last days. We're to do what we can in proclaiming Christ. Amen. Be encouraged, church. Be encouraged. God is so good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. What a Savior.